This is St. Luke's Day. In the rubrics of the Book of Common Prayer, uh, you're permitted to transfer your patronal feast to the nearest Sunday. In the old days, before the liturgical renewal in the church's life, uh, <clears throat> Sunday was not understood to be, uh, a, it was understood to be a commemoration of the resurrection, but uh, all of the saints intruded. So if there was a saint's day on Sunday, you bumped the Sunday and celebrated the saint's day. So we were doing it for the feast of Mother Cabrini's shoes or something like that instead of maybe something a little bit more significant. So we <clears throat> celebrate St. Luke's Day on the nearest Sunday to October 18th, which was just yesterday. So what I'm going to do today <clears throat> is preach about St. Luke, about the gospel, about the themes that St. Luke has in his gospel, and to say some uh, general things about uh, why uh, Luke is important. It's an honor to be the rector of a parish where St. Luke is the patron. I should say a bit of personal information, and that is that my grandson, my first grandson, was named Lucas by my son and his and daughter-in-law. And I thought, oh, I'm so flattered. And I said, Lucas, yeah. I said, well, we named him after Lucas Skywalker. <laughs> so I figured, well, that's the generational deal going, right? <laughs> there, are more, <clears throat> there are more churches dedicated to St. Luke in the Diocese of El Camino Real than any other dedication. There's St. Luke's Los Gatos, St. Luke's Hollister, St. Luke's Halone, and St. Luke's Atescadero. So St. Luke loomed large down in this part of the old diocese of California. In the Episcopal Church, um, Episcopal hospitals are often dedicated to St. Luke. There's St. Luke's in San Francisco, for example, or was. I don't know if it's still there. But uh, that was the patronage like, you know, St. Joseph's Hospital or something in the Roman Catholic Church. So St. Luke is popular in that sense. There's no reason to believe that <clears throat> or, or to doubt that the gospel of Luke uh, was written by Luke, although no gospel, you need to know this, no gospel uh, is... We have no idea from any of the Gospels who wrote them because they were anonymous. And that means, how do we know St. Luke wrote this Gospel? Well, because the tradition says he wrote it. Very early on, which precedes uh, the formation of the Christian Bible in the order of the books that we possess now, St. Luke was understood to be the author of this particular Gospel. There's no reason to believe that he wasn't a physician. There are more healing stories in this gospel than in any other of the gospels. Luke is more concerned about issues of social justice and equity than any other gospel writer. He's, in, he's very concerned about the stewardship of creation. We see him begin to introduce into his gospel women's voices that heretofore had not been in uh, any of the other Gospels. And so he is the man for inclusion. 
and for an understanding of the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom of God here, not somewhere else, here. And so he writes about that. Excuse me. Luke's Greek is the best Greek in the New Testament. He was the Shakespeare of the New Testament. So it's obvious that he was, uh, that was his first language. He was a Gentile, and he came from a Christian community that were largely Gentile, some of whom had hovered around Judaism as admirers of Judaism, but did not become Jews. And Luke is part of that group in some ways. So let me say what Luke stood for in uh, his gospel besides what I've just said. History becomes now the history of salvation. I preach a lot about the history of salvation, particularly during the 50 days of Easter, because the history of salvation means the grand narrative that we read in the Bible both in the Hebrew Bible and in the Christian scriptures. It's the story of God's presence to the people of God. And what happened in the Christian community was that they heard this narrative read to them. They began to connect the dots. And they said to themselves, you know, this history is my history. And more to the point, my own personal history must have something to do with the history of salvation because God needs me in big and small ways to fulfill uh, his will for the creation. And so we began to say, I have some connection to this grand narrative and I want to be part of things. Salvation can be seen in the presence of healing and wholeness. Same word both in the Hebrew Bible and in the Greek New Testament, for to save is the same word that is used for to heal. So Luke is particularly interested in this whole idea of the relationship between healing, medicine, he was a physician, and thinking about healing in a wider sense than just the physical healing of people who are sick. So that the Christian people are somehow to be involved in the healing of the world. And that we need to understand more deeply and fully what that means. There's been a lot of work in biblical studies done on this issue over the last 20 or 25 years. Coming to the conclusion that we perhaps have overemphasized the fact that the Christian life was about dying and going somewhere else. Than saying this is the place where we realize the values of the kingdom. That we're here, and Luke believes that's what it is. And he describes this in his gospel. I'll talk about that in a minute. And also, Luke had in mind the idea that it was part of God's plan for the church to come into being. Luke's gospel was written probably around 80 A.D. And many Christians prior to that thought, well... Jesus is going to come any minute. Paul certainly had that sense of urgency in his writing. And then, of course, we get to 80 or 85, and they're all going, well, he hasn't come yet. And Luke said, it's part of the plan and purpose of God that the church come into being. 
So worrying about whether, when and where that's going to happen is not as useful as saying how do we become part of this enterprise? How do we become part of what God has in mind for us? Luke is also the great theologian of the Holy Spirit. And you've heard me say many times before, what does it mean to say or to think that you are a possessor of the Holy Spirit? We believe as Episcopalians at your baptism you receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is understood to mean God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. The Gospel according to St. Luke is volume 1. Volume 2 is the Acts of the Apostles. And what this is about is that the Gospel is about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus Christ. And the book of Acts is about the presence of the Holy Spirit or, and the transfer of the Holy Spirit to the people of God. And that we become now the beneficiaries and the fiduciaries of the Holy Spirit, the stewards of the Holy Spirit in a way that makes a difference in relationship. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. Maybe you can think about it in some way like I've uh, done things or been able to do things or receive the strength and the energy to do certain things and I think later I have no idea how I was able to do that. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. In the beginning story in Acts where the Holy Spirit descends on the church and the apostles and the disciples come out of the upper room and they start to speak they were not speaking in ecstatic speech, what we call glossolalia. Say that. Let's all say that. <laughs> glossolalia. That's tongues. We're talking about people who came down and started to speak, and everybody there who spoke a different language understood what they were saying. So the presence of the Holy Spirit doesn't merely bring some kind of ecstatic speech or some kind of ecstatic religious experience, it brings to us clarity. Clarity of thinking. And a person who heard that read to them or experienced that in the great and grand narrative of salvation history said, you know what this is like? This is like the reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Remember, God confused the speech of the people when they were building the Tower of Babel. And this represents uh, symbolically the reversal of this confusion. And that Christian people can begin now to speak with some clarity about things. And they can have some clarity themselves in their thinking and in their feeling about what it is that God wants them to do. And Luke was very concerned about the presence of the Holy Spirit. So his history divides into the era of the law and the prophets, the earthly ministry of Jesus, and the era of the church. Today we read in the gospel from Luke, a great, a great gospel. I'm going to read parts of it to you here. Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee 
and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, here and now. In him, in his words, and in his works. Something else we learned, by the way, from this passage is that Jesus knew how to read. Knew how to read Hebrew. So that must have meant he went to Hebrew school somewhere along the way. And he unrolls the scroll and he reads to everybody. When I was in seminary, the New Testament professors uh, began to say, well, you know, it's possible that Jesus uh, knew how to speak Greek. And now it's assumed in New Testament studies. He lived right next to a big Greek town called Cephalus. And I'm sure he and his dad went over there and did some jobs and were there and were exposed to this sort of outlook and how people think about things. You know, the coming together in Christian history of uh, the Hellenistic or Greek outlook and the Hebrew outlook uh, makes the ordination of women to the priesthood look like amateur night. <laughs> I'm serious. It was a serious, serious thing that occurred there in the history of ideas and in the way in which we understand God and religion and a whole lot of different things like that. So it's important. And Jesus is speaking about the transformative effect of the Spirit of God on people and that it can be seen in the sacred scriptures of his people in the book of the prophet Isaiah. And that he understands that very, very clearly. So I guess the lesson this week would be to think a little bit uh, about how this connects to St. Luke's church. St. Luke's has a mission statement. <clears throat> About 20 years ago, there was a cartoon in the New Yorker magazine where a husband and wife are sitting together in the living room. And the wife looks at her husband and says, No, I do not think that our marriage would be improved by having a mission statement. St. Luke says the mission of St. Luke's parish is to worship God faithfully together, to be people in Christ, and by the grace of the Holy Spirit, to do God's work in this place. So give thanks to God for the opportunity to uh, be an ambassador for the Holy Spirit of God to other people. Amen. <laughs>